0: and welcome to the deep sea podcast pressurized a short punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point if you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode you can find it in the same feed and now to get right to the point
1: so this episode we should talk about something a bit more inspiring or something positive so i've picked a subject which i think is positive i think it certainly has positive bits to it but the background to it and the the fluff if you like on the fringes of it are maybe not so positive because the difficult one it kind of leads on a little bit from deep sea mining one it's about how the deep sea can give something back then that's Always going to be slightly contentious. And this particular one involves as many lawyers and politicians as the deep sea mining does, so bear with me. I mean, we've spoken before in the podcast about the legalities of ownership of the seas, and that coastal states have 12 nautical miles of territorial waters, which is 100% theirs, and then they have 200 nautical miles of what's called the exclusive economic zone. So they're, you know, they have the exclusive rights to make money and the 200 nautical miles off the shore, which is why, as I said, 40 years ago, all the trenches ended up in somebody's backyard. And it's this whole thing about what to do with the rest of it. And up until the 12 nautical miles the I think it's relatively safe to say we know how that works. The big complication is what happens after that. The rest of the planet, which most of it is deep sea, right? So in the early 80s, we've known about this. It's known as areas beyond national jurisdiction, or the ABNJ, or more commonly known... As the rather unimaginative, the area. (laughs) Really? Yeah, it's just illegally, it's just called the area. It's sometimes referred to as the high seas, and it's not international waters because apparently I found out yesterday international waters is not a recognised term. But the area is? The area is, yeah. (laughs) So on the high seas, only the state under whose flag a vessel operates is responsible for enforcing international law. Whereas if you're inside the EEZ of a different country, it's between you and the coastal state to agree. So a little bit of background is basically this all comes down to what can you can do in the area, even though it might be positive, it might still be seen as negative, but there's a whole bunch of legal framework around it. So the first thing you have is what's called the freedom of the seas. And that is basically gives anyone who's anyone freedom to navigate around the world in those particular areas. There's no overarching organisation you have to check with. But anyway, the freedom of the seas was, was proposed by the then US president Woodrow Wilson during the First World War. And that led to all sorts of arguments. But the concept of the freedom of seas is now found in the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, which is UNCLOS. And that's going to come up a lot, and it comes up a lot in deep sea mining and fishing and everything else. So what that says is the high seas are open to all states, whether coastal or landlocked, and it gives a non-exhaustive list of freedoms. And that includes navigation, overflight, the laying of submarine cables, fishing and scientific research. So there's this other thing as well, which is called the Common Heritage of Humankind Principle, or the CHP. And this is another contentious legal principle in the ocean shenanigans and it was proposed by the UN General Assembly in 1967 by an ambassador from Malta. And that was to push for a reasonable deep seabed governance and it was basically to disrupt or at least slow down any kind of colonial rush to the oceans. They're trying to prevent over-exploitation by particular states. So one of the things that was hoping to, to do was prevent coastal states from further extending legal presence or sovereign rights into international waters or the area, and provide legal platform for sharing the economic benefits of seabed resources among states. So this is where we get into mining and various other things. And this is what underpins a lot of the issues about mining and so on. The problem is that these resources don't belong to anyone specifically, or rather they belong to everyone, or you could argue they belong to no one, who gets the right to profit from them. So after twenty years of more arguing and fighting and pointing fingers and all the rest of it, the CHP was eventually merged into the Unclus. And that states that no state shall claim or exercise sovereignty or sovereign rights over any part of the area or its resources. Okay, so this is again where sea mining hits a rather contentious wall, and then there is more in the sea than just these minerals, right? So there's also the smelly stuff, right? There's biology, and there's the tiny wee smelly stuff, which is genetics. And that's what wasn't originally put into the law of the sea, because it's relatively new in the grand scheme of things, so... One thing that wasn't really built into it in the first place was things like the conservation and sustainable use of marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, which is another acronym, BBNJ. So that includes access to and the use of another acronym, marine genetic resources, MGR. So this is genetic material derived from marine species, marine species in the area. So the marine species that don't belong to anyone, who has the right to profit off those if you can? So in international waters, this is all regulated under the Nagoya Protocol, which is a protocol that basically states that if it's in your 12 mile nautical mile limit, you know, it's all yours. If it's beyond that, you need to sort yourself out. But beyond that, it's still a bit of a hand-wavy lawyer type of thing going on. So where I'm going with this is the concept or the scientific discipline of bioprospecting or biodiscovery. And I used to work on this a little bit. When I was involved in this, I'm not really anymore, but I used to get a bit annoyed when papers kept listing biodiscovery alongside mining, bottom trawling, climate change, ocean acidification, all these imminent threats to deep sea biodiversity. Because in reality, I used to take a lot of samples for people in biodiscovery, but the samples they need are minuscule. I mean, really, really small volume stuff and we've never taken a sample that wasn't already been taken for something else. They've always been minuscule subsamples. The samples I've always taken for for bio-discovery are nowhere near anything in the league of what scientists were taking anyway or even throwing over the side of the ship at the end of the day. So I always thought if bio-discovery was an imminent threat to deep sea, then again so is marine biology. (laughs) It's like Some of the samples we've taken, sediment samples for bio-discovery have probably been less than what's smeared on the outside of the box core.
0: And when the outcome is new antibiotics and treatments for some of the worst diseases we're facing?
1: Yes, I always thought it was a good thing to be involved in because if it's no skin of miners to stuff a couple little bits in a jar and give it to someone who knows what they're doing then great so let's think about marine genetic resources in the context of the area which of course is where most of the deep sea is because it's all at least 200 miles off the coast so now we're all looking at developing a system whereby there should be eco access and benefit sharing schemes similar to the one for seabed minerals so if you discover some billion dollar anti-cancer drugs the idea is everyone should benefit from it And that's where it becomes complicated. Most of the planet is the high seas of the area and the vast ocean expanse which is apparently a hotbed of exciting biological compounds which could host cures for everything from cancer and Alzheimer's to new antibiotics. It's all there for the taking but only some countries have access to deep sea, only some have the infrastructure to develop these into meaningful and affordable drugs and therefore only a few countries or nations could ultimately control and profit from them despite the initial resource technically belonging to everyone and no one. So, I was thinking about how big a deal is this. There's a 2018 study which I read, and they revealed that they found 13,000 genetic sequences based on marine genetic resources from 862 marine species, which are associated with patents. And it's quite a difficult paper to get your head around because it keeps throwing percentages and numbers and all the rest of it. But it seems like of those species or possibly sequences, 73% were bacteria, but 84% Of the patents based on real-life sequences were held by 221 private companies, one of which, one particular company in Germany, hold 47% of marine genetic resource-based patents. And their argument was, who owns biodiversity? Do they actually then own that gene sequence? And if they've patented it, then I guess they do.
0: They just discovered something, but this was a naturally occurring gene. They now have ownership of something that occurred naturally.
1: But this is where my my head starts to spin, right? Because when I read that, I'm like, "Ooh, ooh, that doesn't sound good. That sounds really negative. And then after, I was thinking, so what? You know what I mean? Does that actually affect me professionally or personally? If someone else has a patent on the full genome of a species I normally work on, does that stop me sequencing it? myself or does it stop me publishing that in a phylogenetic tree the fact that someone's gone to the bother to do this and is i guess they're making money out of it that's their business right literally that is their business not mine so it feels morally and ethically not right but then at the same time i don't really care if, if they can make a living out of that and feed their kids and great i'll do something else so where i'm going with this is ultimately i don't know
0: that's okay i think even though we not sure how we feel about this i think it's good that we've brought it up because i feel like this is just starting to enter the public consciousness and yeah. you're right your your gut feeling to some of this stuff is a bit panic and like oh that doesn't seem right but then once you try and figure out well why it, it sort of loses momentum
1: but this is the thing because if someone's using these things to find cures for diseases that affect the entire world shouldn't we be encouraging this at all times of which case, why has it become such a contested phenomenon which is listed alongside the four horsemen of the deep sea apocalypse? It seems an altruistic quest to cure disease, right? I mean, I guess there are always going to be politics around these things, but I'd imagine it all comes down to power and money.
0: Even for altruistic reasons, if you need a product, Somebody has to make that and that costs money, and people will need to be employed and have jobs. Uh, I'm sort of very up for being anti-capitalist and getting all getting all ranty on, but these are goods and services, and people will have spent time and resources and they expect to have a return on that
1: well okay let's 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 play devil's advocate, Eric and we don't know yeah because I, I don't know because I, I I've always been a big fan of about discovery because I, th- I think finding new cures for cancer and you but antibiotics or, or it should be done high speed as a matter of urgency and it seems like there's a lot of resistance to that or at least there's a lot of resistance in the, the way that's being done and I guess it might be similar to oil and gas where pharma companies have always seen as being these big horrible bad entities that are only out to make money And but I don't know how much that's true and how much of that is just nonsense that's punted around in the press and so on and so on. So I think we should call someone who knows more about this than I do because this honestly isn't one of those interviews we do when we kind of know the subject. We genuinely lost somebody genuinely needs to <laughs> (laughs) straighten this out for me because I I feel like I'm wrong going why is everyone bothered about this I think it's a great idea I'm obviously missing something so we should get on the phone and the person I'm going to phone today is Professor Marcel Jaspers Marcel, welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me on. For the benefit of the audience, tell us a bit about yourself and the type of work you do in biodiscovery.
2: I'm Marcel Jaspers, I'm Professor of Chemistry at the University of Aberdeen and I run a research centre called the Marine Biodiscovery Centre and the main focus of that is to look for interesting molecules from the deep sea, cold oceans and also from now from deserts and other places, other extreme locations that might be used to treat diseases, particularly cancer, infections, inflammation and now of course viral diseases as well.
1: One of the things that It was... When I got involved in all this a few years back, was the terminologies involved? And we hear about bioprospecting and biodiscovery. And having Googled this, it seems that bioprospecting is what was referred to as the pursuit of natural products for commercial gain, and biodiscovery is pursuit of natural products to do interesting things just for scientific purposes. Does that still work? Is that the actual definition, or is it the same thing?
2: Bioprospecting is the one that's actually defined in various dictionaries and also United Nations treaties. So it has a it has a formal definition, I can't remember what it is, but it is... Well defined. Biodiscovery is a word that uh, Chris Maddison and I made up in 2004. Oh, there you go. (laughs) To prevent people thinking that bioprospecting automatically led to the mining of the resources. That's the deal. So basically, what we're thinking about here is that the original concept was perhaps that you might go. And find a wonderful uh, drug that cures cancer from a sponge, and you would go back and collect tons of that sponge in order to make a commercial product. However, that's not necessarily the case. It's often the case that you take a, a small amount of the sponge, you find out that it contains a wonderful molecule that you want to develop, and of course, there's no way you're going to get enough of that sponge to make uh, the product commercially. So you develop a different process. So it's the concept that you get the idea from nature and you develop that further. So hence the the word discovery, so biodiscovery rather than bioprospecting.
1: That's why I thought that, what I originally thought it was the difference. Was. Was. I will well, stop bioprospecting inferred that you would go back and do like bio mining, as biodiscovery was, you just synthesize it later. So, okay, I guess we're agreed there. So, I've often heard the deep sea referred to as the paraphrase hotbed of potentially interesting biochemical compounds and, and so on. What Why is that? Is it the deep sea environment itself, or is it just the sheer size of it? Wouldn't it be easier to look at shallow water first? What is it about the deep sea that attracts biodiscovery?
2: I think a lot of it is to do with uh, the fact that these interesting niches or habitats have allowed evolution to go in a different direction and you find new strains interesting strains what's really important to recognize as well is that it's not just those strains but also the skills you need as a microbiologist to isolate those particular strains so you might have to have organisms that grow under very high pressure which is really tough to do more likely than not you you need to consider the nutritional requirements that you have for these particular bacteria yeah. uh, so you might be able to think about it it grows in very low nutrient conditions or very low temperatures or high salts or whatever so that's something that we, we forget about so it's often the fact that we work with the best microbiologists we can work with with, in order to be able to get the most interesting strains. And it takes us years of experience, microbiology to, to get a strain that, to, to understand the strains to such an extent that you're able to just tell by looking at it quite often that it's going to be something cool. And we've worked with people like Mike Goodfellow in Newcastle, uh, with um, Alan Bull in Kent, Juan Asenjo in Chile, and a number of their PhD students, etc., cetera, who are excellent at this kind of work. So again, for us, it, it's as much as anything, the environment, it's the fact that the evolution has probably led them down an interesting pathway. And finally, that leads to some kind of biosynthetic potential. That allows them to make these, these interesting molecules but in order to find that you have to of course isolate the bacterium and isolate the um, the compounds from that
1: So is bio discovery in the deep sea a, a common thing or is it still in its infancy and I seem to recall at some point you tell me that there are commercially available products that have derived from deep sea origins is that
2: right? What's happened is that bio discovery from the sea uh, most of the work is, is on shallow organisms so reef organisms there's some things that have come from fish allergic fish that literally just you squeeze them you get oil out of them and that, that uh, prevents somebody having a second heart attack so that's an important drug for heart disease but for deep sea stuff actually there's not that much out there that we can absolutely be certain of and there's a couple that I know for sure and they're not necessarily medical products so one of them is from a deep sea vent in Baja California I think it's about 2,000 meters deep or so and that is an enzyme that's used to replicate DNA so it's a very high fidelity enzyme for polymerase chain reaction of course we've heard a lot about that with the COVID PCR tests that's important and the other one is um, a deep sea vent bacterium that grows on top of one of these um, vanilla pompiana*, it's the sort of um, yes. interesting worm right? The tube worm yeah. Yeah it grows again in, in the trench just off Californian coast so it's, it is outside of national jurisdiction and it's used in a face cream as something that prevents uh, wrinkles or inflammation so it's an just wow. interesting, interesting ones. Again th- those are relatively minor ones but of course the potential is out there for more to be discovered. So you, do you get the same effect if you
1: just rub a tube worm on your face? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I also found really interesting which I think would be an interesting thing to talk about is the timeline involved in all this the drug discovery pipeline i think it's called you know if i handed you a vial full of deep sea mud with all the planets aligning how long would it take from me handing that to you to a product being available on the shelf of pharmacy or in a hospital
2: 10 to 20 years typically is the kind of time i find that, that fascinating
1: about. i'd really do especially after you know everyone's sort of freaking out about how quickly the covid vaccine was developed but i don't think people have a handle on what goes on behind the scenes in in the pharmaceutical industry? Because 20 years, you think if you discover some amazing compound, you'd be like, oh, brilliant, this works. Apparently, not as easy as that. (laughs) The kind of things that
2: we would do is, indeed, is to try and, you take a deep-sea sediment sample, let's say, something from the Mariana Trench, then you you bring that back. So again, that takes a few months to get to your lab. And in the lab, you would then try and isolate bacteria using selective isolation techniques. That basically means you you spread it on a bacterial growth plate containing Mm -hmm. certain kinds of things that inhibit one strain and perhaps uh, encourage other strain of bacteria to grow. Once you've got them, you've got probably hundreds of strains on a plate. You need to select the best one. So what you do is select those and try to purify them. And eventually what you end up with is a plate that has a single strain on it. You might have a couple of hundred of those plates from the same sediment sample. The next step then is to grow each one of those strains individually in small-scale culture and find out whether it has any talent. We just call it chemical talent in our lab. Oh, I like that. That's good. Yeah. We, we, we stick it into a mass spectrometer we feed it typically on a few different media. So you might feed it on some that's low nutrient, something that's high nutrient, low temperature, high temperature. You might change the conditions a little bit, but you might end up with a thousand extra Right? So, you've got to feed those all through the big machines to figure uh-huh. out whether there is any talent there. And that, you know, there's a lot of automated analysis methods right now that you can use, but a lot of it's still a hard graph by hand. So, you're stuck there with a few data sets that tell you that each extract contains 50 molecules. Out of those, 48 are known and two are new, let's say. So, that still ends up with hundreds of compounds that you might want to investigate. So what do you do then is to take those materials and test them against diseases. And again, luckily, uh, we have good partners. For instance, Medina in Spain and the University of Tromsø in Norway are good partners for us to test against cancer, inflammation, infection. We have partners in Leuven testing against epilepsy as well. So again, that's really good to have those, those testing partners. And they will take those through and, and tell you. So a classical sort of a uh, strategy that we had for epilepsy. We started with 2,000 extracts. We ended up with seven compounds at the end that might be interesting. It's a good whittling down of things. Yeah. Out of those, two were tested in animals, eventually, after testing that they were drug-like so they could go through membranes, etc. They could reach the target. So they were active in zebrafish, then they were proved to be active in, in mice, The challenge then is to make enough materials. So again, this is the pre-clinical
1: trial process. So how how long are we talking at this point? This is two to three years already, right? So
2: then you would take it to, uh, if you could scale it up, that might be its own challenge. In this case, it's a massive challenge because the molecules um, are difficult to make. So uh, we're working with a group in the Czech Republic to try and make it for epilepsy, scaling up to half a gram for multiple animal trials or larger scale trials. And then you would take it to, you know, if, if it passes those trials, you would take it to the next stage, which is which is to try and get enough funding for large animal trials to get into human clinical trials. Phase one is essentially, it tests out whether or not it's safe to use it in humans. So, so you, at this stage, you might have spent five years. So human phase one trials, you have to get funding for them, which is challenging quite often in, the, in a competitive marketplace. And you often need industry support. So if an industry is not interested, uh, you're not going to go anywhere. So quite often at this point, people say, well, let's find a company. Let's let's start something ourselves and, and do this. So you find that the preclinical work and maybe the first phase of clinical work is now done a lot of times with small companies. And at some point, a big company will get interested in, in buying your your stuff. So those initial clinical trials may take you a couple of years to get some mm-hmm. results that are decent. And then you need to raise the funding for the phase two, which is dose escalation typically. I mean, each clinical trial is different and each, each type of sure, case yeah. is different. So you, you can't really say much, but often it's something like dose escalation trials which is where you, you figure out whether the drug is effective against the disease and whether or not a particular dose is better than other doses. And that can take two to three years again. And you might still be running some phase one clinical trials in the background. You might run to phase two. And if you get an approval through that stage, and again, the attrition rates are very high at this point. So out of maybe 2,500 compounds going into the pipeline, you get one coming out the far end, right? So it's a, really, right. it's a really big attrition rate. And then you might get to phase three if you're lucky. And phase three says, basically, we're going to do a multi-center international clinical trial with thousands of patients. Or at least several hundred of patients, mm-hmm. and that could cost you tens of millions, if not more, to run. Wow! So that, again, the cost is phenomenal to get that done. If it's a long-term disease like Alzheimer's, you might have to do a trial that lasts months and months and months. Compared to something like infections, where you know if you treat the patient and they're clear of disease after two weeks, you've you've proved effect. So it's different for different diseases. It'll take you several years, and then you would have to ask for approval, and that would take you another couple of years. So again, what happened in the COVID vaccine is that those Committees were primed to receive the data for the assessment. So again, normally it would take you up to 18 months unless it's a priority approval. In this case, it went through the British equivalent, the European equivalent, the American equivalent in record time because the data was there. And they compressed all the phases of the trials together. Basically, they basically had all yeah. the money in place. Money was guaranteed, and they were able to run phase one, phase two, phase three almost simultaneously, which is remarkable. But in this case, so what you've got is somewhere between nine to 10 years for an antibiotic, let's say, into 20 years for a cancer drug is you know, classically the time that it takes. And again, a lot of this is disjointed, a lot of it is disconnected. A doesn't know what B is doing sometimes, and it's really difficult to follow sometimes. So I actually tried to follow some of these things through the literature, and I have a couple of examples where I've just written out everything that I know about these drugs on the page. It's just been sent as a report to a, an agency, and hopefully that will be published. So people can actually see the kind of what goes behind it, is the patents that are in it, the publications that are in there that helped to get to the, the the final stages of that drug being approved, and that's the kind of stuff that's lost in in the literature quite often. So it's useful yeah. to have it written down. But yeah, so you see it's
1: a lengthy process. Let's move on to a little bit of the politics behind all this. In terms of drug discovery, etc., within state EEZs, Nagoya Protocol seems to have that reasonably well covered as long as people adhere to it. But one of the big issues at the moment is the area or the areas beyond national jurisdiction and this legality of ownership. So where are we with that right now? I mean, is that something which is being close to being resolved or is it still mad, complicated <laughs> <laughs> argument going on between lawyers and politicians?
2: You probably know the background to this, it was- was to the paper, I think it was called The Deepest of Ironies by Lara Gloka that came out in the 1990s, about 10 years after the uh, United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea was signed and left out all of the biodiversity. But then 10 years after that, in the early 2000s they started to get together this um, open-ended working group so they had (laughs) 10 years of discussions basically deciding that something should be done that was important and then eventually in 20 i think 2015 16 17 i can't remember the exact year they decided that they would do something and that was called the preparatory committee and to you and i when you when you hear the word preparatory committee you, you don't know what it means but what it actually means is that they would write a document in which it would state what the law would include not what the law would say but what elements it would include And that included a bunch of different stuff. And you probably know better than me about marine protected areas and and all those things. But my bit was on... Uh, marine genetic resources and questions on the sharing of benefits because you could up to that point essentially take a sample from the deep seabed and commercialize a product from that and not worry too much about where the money went afterwards you could you could take it all you know it was really asking the question is that fair and is that something that we should be doing and the other question that you had early on was is that damaging or not to the environment first of all most of biodiscovery takes small samples and as long as you're aware that in a sensitive environment you don't take big samples you don't do damaging sampling types then you, you're okay but the second question on the sharing of benefits is really tough because there is an argument raging still about equity, equitability of the whole thing. So basically uh, a lot of the debate now is going out from that starting point Mm-hmm. So it says fair and equitable sharing of benefits. Uh, what does that mean? So if you go from that viewpoint, you have to think about, you know, a lot of it is, to my mind, is the sharing of knowledge. But more than anything else, I think that will benefit people the most, as long as people all have access to the knowledge that's gained by investigating the deep ocean.
1: Is that really what's meant by benefit sharing is is just the know-how behind it all? No, I don't think it is. That's the problem. When you write it like that, it says, well, that's fair. That sounds great. But then you mm-hmm. think there's 195 countries. Yeah. So where would the incentive for a pharma company to even develop the drug if they know that as soon as it makes money they have to give it away plus if you've got 195 countries a bit of mathematics it means that for every million dollars you make each country only gets five grand it's hardly worth it (laughs) so, so
2: we did work all these things out my argument was essentially you know knowledge gained as long as everybody can use that knowledge equally Uh, in their own countries. And that's the problem, that it's not at the moment, it's not an equal playing field. So a country like the USA or the UK has a much better potential for commercializing any findings from deep sea organisms. So that's important to to recognize that fact. But like you say, I mean, the the kind of money that you get out of a drug, say it's a billion dollar molecule, right? It raises a billion billion dollars per year. And that's possible. The maximum benefit you will ever get out of a, a company that develops a drug is about 3% of the royalty. So it's a billion dollar royalty. 3% of that is 30 million, right? So you spread right. that around the world. It doesn't come out as very much. So is that worth it? Is that even going to pay off the bills for the, the mechanism that we're developing here? And the answer is, is probably not. So what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives we came up with as ideas are really good capacity building or partnership building, uh, making sure that everybody is able to benefit equally from the discoveries that we make from the deep sea and you know everything from training to building of research centres to um, working on conservation measures for the deep ocean as benefits for everyone rather than trying to get money out of it because the money, the money will have to be in the final document just because there will be many countries that, that want it in there with the realisation that like the Nagoya and like all the other treaties that we have that, that have monetary benefits that there probably will be very little eventuating and it's better to have something now which could be training or a sharing of knowledge or building of labs and stuff like that now rather than later in
1: 20 years time When So as long when, as something's going back into the system then yeah. that should work rather than it being perceived as over-exploitation Yeah. Yeah, That makes more sense because I, I kept thinking about the financial benefits and god you would have to make crazy amounts of money for it to be worth anybody's time but you're right it's more to do with infrastructure and knowledge and so on.
2: It's the kind of debate that's going on at the United Nations right now I mean it's, yeah. it's between sessions so we've had this the last three sessions have been intergovernmental committee which is writing the law and we're getting to the stages where some of the bits of the treaty are looking pretty good, good. and those are the bits that I don't understand like marine protected areas and stuff marine genetic resources we're still at loggerheads because of this distinction between the seafloor and the
1: water column. Yeah that's weird isn't it? When the lawyers <laughs> get involved in the sea. You know, that the seabed and the water column are two separate things. They don't really function without each other. <laughs> no, no. know. You try and explain to people
2: that a sea bacteria may, may float around for a bit and go on the sea floor for a bit, or you might yeah. have a sponge that, that, when it spawns, the larvae go everywhere and then they settle on the sea floor again.
1: Well, you got holothurians that move along the sea floor and then jump into the water column and relocate. I guess a fair game as long as they leave the bottom
2: But Europe is trying to broker a pragmatic solution that doesn't pay heed to that distinction it also doesn't mention the words that often the different uh, parties mention which is the freedom of the high seas which is the water column so you can fish whatever you want and it's yours and uh, the common heritage of humankind which is the seafloor which means that what you find and what you do must be shared and again it's obvious from the treaty at the moment from the UNCLOS treaty the original one that you must share the knowledge there needs to be better connectivity between people doing the science and people making the policy that they know what's going on. And again, a lot of talk is about this mechanism that they call the Access and Beneficent Clearinghouse or whatever they want to call it to my mind, it shouldn't be a database that does everything. It should just be able to point people at the best practice database that already exists out there. So you might go to OBIS for some data, you might go to Octopus for some other data or whatever databases are out there. You don't necessarily need to replicate stuff in that clearinghouse. So
1: along those lines, one thing I really wanted to ask you, and this is a genuine, I don't know where I sit with this, is I was reading a study recently that was, I mean it was a scientific paper so I was trying not to be biased one way or another, but reading between the lines it seems that there were people quite annoyed at the fact that, oh I think there's 13,000 genetic sequences have been patented based on MGRs and of those, 47% are owned by one particular German company and that seems to be portrayed as being this is not right. You know, a commercial enterprise is essentially owning biodiversity and when you read it, you think, oh, I don't like the idea of that. That doesn't sit right. But then at the same time, so what? What does that even mean? Does it stop other people sequencing the same genes? Why, if at all, should we be bothered by that?
2: I read that paper when it came out in a long conversation with the lead author. The issue is that often a patent Patents will cite genetic sequences Mm -hmm. as examples, or to say, we got this from here. Uh, And then they make a a new sequence, which they patent. So the actual number of sequences mentioned in patents and number of sequences actually patented are very different. So that paper didn't Uh make that distinction. So there's a a problem there. We did actually ask the company in question, I won't mention on the podcast, (laughs) but you can find it if you like. They actually came to a meeting and they said, basically, we've done our own due diligence on this data and most of these sequences are in fact just genetic sequences that we're mentioning because they are from the database and we need to cite them as evidence that we have done something novel and different. And there's only very few sequences which are heavily engineered, which are actually patented. So again, the numbers are wrong. The numbers for terrestrial environment are much, much greater. So again, there was no comparison made to that. Yeah, uh, again, which is, a, which is an interesting challenge. That work
1: should be redone, and I believe it is being redone right now. Can you patent a genetic sequence? If you sequence the entire genome of species A, could you actually patent that?
2: You can patent an invention. So in some places you can patent the sequence, a raw sequence, but it's very rare in some countries, mm-hmm. but most of the countries you have to have some, done something very clever and inventive to it. So it has right. to be non-obvious. You have to alter its original
1: state. Yeah.
2: But, I mean, I have a couple of patents like that myself and th- there is indeed, indeed a lot of genetic engineering gone on into these sequences in order to make them interesting and different uh, yeah. Exciting. So yeah, but anyway, I mean, there there are companies that are doing far worse than that. And some companies who admit to doing this again, I won't mention their name, have a massive in-house database of sequences that they derive. That they basically go out, they collect a uh, massive bacteria from the middle of the ocean. They then sequence them and keep them in their own in-house database, whilst using the external database the publicly available global database they download that and compare their sequences that are secret to the the open database that's available that's not very sporting is it it's not very sporting not to give that (laughs) data back so again my, my my feeling would be to encourage those companies to deposit those sequences that they're not patenting back into the main database so that we can all benefit
1: on behalf of myself and tom thank you very much for coming on the deep sea podcast thank you alan thank you tom
0: And that was a pressurized version of one of our longer episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full length episode, just match the episode numbers and you'll be able to find the full length version in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time and I hope we'll you see you later.